Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me, as usual, is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hello, all you lovely people. And Scott's wife is doing our disclaimer for us now. That's right. That's right. Here it is. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Damn, that's good. <laughs> it is. It's really good. Yeah, she does a good job. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to help her with other stuff, too. Yeah, that's dope. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. <laughs> Episode 76. Yeah, yeah, it's almost as old as you. <laughs> wow. I sorry, man. We're off to CrimeCon this week, so the week that this episode drops, we oh, will be packing our little bags. Just, just like uh, David Banner with the little hobo oh, bag. Oh, is that, is that going to be your bag? This the, the bandana on a stick? That's probably going to be it. <laughs> I'll put all my dark poutine stickers and... and magnets and stuff in there and i'm gonna wear one outfit all i'm bringing is cameras that's it oh god as long as we can do carry on because yeah it's gonna be a nightmare well all the traveling i've done i never really had to check a bag you can bring on one roller bag yeah uh and uh uh, like a over the shoulder bag so there you go it's good if you're coming to crime con come to podcast row and give us a visit we'll hand you if we have any left a sticker a pin and or a magnet or both. We're probably going to give you all, all three of those things. And just say hi. Take some photos with us. Uh, let's chat. I'm super stoked to get to meet No, we don't want to talk to anybody. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> Stay away from us. That's not true. <laughs> no, really. It'd be so fun to just like get to see a bunch and meet a bunch of listeners. So hopefully you're all there and yeah. uh, come say hi. On with the show. The NHL finals are this week. That's correct. And last week. And um, who's in it? Boston Bruins and oh, no. St. Louis Blues. <sighs> the Canucks aren't. Well, clearly. They didn't even make the playoffs yeah. again. Yep. They are, quote, rebuilding. Yep. 
Yeah. Stings a bit to see the Canucks 2011 rivals, the Bruins in the finals again, uh, still with many of the same faces. You know, I don't even, I don't even know anymore. I, you, you know, I, I, I've been such a dedicated diehard Canucks fan my whole life. Everything revolves around 94 when we made it to the finals. I could still tell you almost every player on the team and stats and stuff, but last couple of years I just haven't been paying attention to the NHL and so uh you know, I don't even know who the hell's left on the Boston Bruins. Well, uh Brad Marchand is still there. Yeah. Zdeno Chera. Well, he's good. The long-armed, gorilla-armed guy. And they drove the Canucks and Canucks fan alike insane with their nasty little plays in the 2011. (sighs) They'll still wear the Boston Bee. Yeah. And they continue to play a big part in the Bruins' continued success. It's like that old adage, I don't like to play against them, but I sure would like them on my team. Yes, exactly. Well, specific, I like Zdeno Chara more than uh, Brad Marchand. But I do have an interesting story about that uh, series, but I'll talk about that later. This week, we're talking about two violent and shameful events happening 17 years apart that left a few scorch marks on this hockey town. Ayo, scorch marks. We're talking about the Vancouver hockey riots of 1994 and 2011. Yeah, it's, uh, this is going to be so classic Canadian to all you American people because, uh, yeah, we, we had two huge riots. And was was it about civil rights? No, no. Was it about like uh, was it a, a race riot or some kind of large protest? No, it was hockey. Yeah, we rioted for hockey. But but you don't know this. Vancouver has seen its share of riots over the years outside of these sports riots. Yeah, no. This is going to be news to me. Many of us have heard the phrase, reading the Riot Act. It's a real thing. From a CBC article on the 2011 Stanley Cup riot. Quote, under sections 67 and 68 of the Criminal Code of Canada, a public official may read what's colloquially called the Riot Act in order to disperse an unruly crowd. And it goes like this. Her Majesty the Queen charges and commands all persons being assembled immediately to disperse and peacefully depart to their habitations or to their lawful business. People who do not peaceably disperse within 30 minutes are guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for life. And I did not know that, that you could be imprisoned for life for participating in a riot. That queen means business, Mike. She certainly does. Wow. It seems to be in lower mainland dwellers' DNA to want to tip things over and set stuff on fire when we're upset about something. And and again, for uh, those who aren't familiar with our area, uh, we call essentially like, Vancouver and its surrounding cities. We just call it the Lower Mainland Lower to encompass the, the whole yeah. area. Maybe there's something in the water. I don't know. It's probably so feet. Feet. It's yeah, feet. there's definitely feet in it's the water. Feet. On September 7th to the 9th in 1907, driven by racism, Vancouverites staged their first riot in Chinatown, led by members of Vancouver's own chapter of the Asiatic Exclusion League. Whoa. began as a planned demonstration against, quote, continuing Japanese, Chinese, and Hindu immigration. Protesters waving their, quote, for a white Canada banners, took their hate out on the shops and residents of Japantown and Chinatown. Their residents saw them coming and armed themselves. The battle lasted two days, and the underband police department finally got control, arresting 23 out of the several thousand involved. Luckily, 
Although property damage was heavy, there were few serious injuries. Wow. Okay, yeah. this is completely new to me. There were free speech riots. Wow. In 1909 and 1911. Huh. There were unemployment riots. In 1935 and 1938. Well, writing's not going to help you find a job. <laughs> there were multiple riots in the BC pen between 1934 and 1976. <laughs> okay. And there were riots after the city hosted the Grey Cup in 1963 and 1966. Which is our Super Bowl. Yeah. The Gastown riot happened in 1971 with socialists and anti-police protesters kicking up a stink. In 1972, people were pissed off they couldn't get into a Rolling Stones concert at Pacific Coliseum. They rioted with police, smashing windows while yelling, free the music. <laughs> they arrested the Rolling Stones? No, no, the people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Riots against globalization happened with the APEC riot in 1997 and 1998's Riot at the Hyatt. I remember those. Yep. And there was a riot. When a Guns N' Roses show was canceled on the day of in 2002. Yep, remember that. All of these included injuries, property damage, arrests, and charges. If you want to learn more about these riots, you can pick up Reading the Riot Act, A Brief History of Riots in Vancouver by Michael Barnholden, and it was released in 2005. So I guess it will not have the last no, it riot. Won't. Yeah. The fact of Vancouver's earlier rich riding history sort of makes sense now that two Canucks losses led to large riots. Yeah, well, we we take it serious. And they're not an easy team to root for. No, no, no. <laughs> Being a Canucks fan comes with a lot of ups and far more downs. <sighs> the fan base is one of the most hated in the league. Just log on to the message board on the Canucks website and scroll through some of the posts, and you can probably see why. I haven't done that in a long time. Yeah, but, uh, it gets pretty foul in yeah. there. Some of us are lifers, though. Yep. My folks brought my sister and I to Vancouver from Nova Scotia for a veterinary conference in the summer of 1976. Oh, wow. I fell in love with everything Vancouver, including the Canucks, and thought I wanted to live here one day. Oh, wow. Even though it was summer, people chatted about the team, and at the time, it was only six years old in the league. Yeah, so yeah. They became the team I'd follow, albeit from afar. On the East Coast, the four-hour time difference made catching Canucks games kind of tough. <laughs> yes. Especially when you're seven, six and seven years old. <laughs> I watched Hockey Night in Canada in my bedroom on CBC late into the night on a 12-inch black-and-white TV with a bent antenna. Oh, my. How close did you have to sit to that thing? 12, 12 inches. It was on a chair like that was right near my TV Is or that, right near my bed. That's like smaller than most iPads now. Right. Yeah, it was a little tiny TV. I cheered for other teams over the years, but always kind of stayed a Canucks fan at heart. There was something romantic about a team of perennial almost champions that appealed to me. Yeah, well, I mean, pretty much lived here my whole life, so it was instilled. And I can remember my dad taking me to see the uh, L.A. Kings mm -hmm. in uh, Pacific Coliseum, of course. And I just, because I always remember that because of those uniforms, those early L.A. Kings, those... Uh, what, the gold? Yeah, the, the, the Crown Royale colors. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man. Oh, that was... A, and our jersey was disgusting at the time, too. And so oh, it was yeah. quite the clash of jerseys. But yeah, I remember just loving going to the games with my dad. We chatted about our experiences as Canuck fans over the years, Scott yep. and I. Yep. Uh, 
Scott has one of those shitty rare orange yellow V jerseys. Yeah, um, it, it's disgusting, but I love it. I'm not sure how you wear that without a certain amount of shame or maybe some irony. Uh, no, we don't iron it. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I don't. I, I don't even. It's just one of those jerseys that's so ostentatious that it's that gross. that that it's amazing. Yeah, you know, like you certainly stand out with this damn near illuminating yellow and orange jersey. Yeah, it's it's quite bold. It's quite bold, but uh, yeah, I you know I I don't wear it until I, unless I go to games and stuff. But I wear it with pride. Outside the riots, there have been some dark and stormy moments around the Canucks uh, throughout the club's history. Just bringing an NHL team to Vancouver was a tough slog. It was a bit of a political hot potato since the first attempts to bring a team to the city in 1964, when building a sports stadium was shot down by cranky voters in a plebiscite. But in January of 1970, the deal was done. Those damn cranky voters. The first franchise victory the Canucks ever celebrated was over those stinking Maple Leafs. <laughs> Early on, the teams lost a lot. They didn't reach 40 victories until their third season. Or how many uh, games were in a season back then, though? Because it certainly wasn't like the 85. No, it was like 70 now. games. I, don't, I, don't, I thought it was far less than that. Well, Still, they sucked. The Canucks can be a rough team to play for, too, thanks to extended travel. Jaunts east, where the bulk of the teams are. Jet lag is a common factor in away games, and we've seen many losses. Yeah, people don't think about that kind of stuff, but it's so true. Like the Rangers, if you're in New York, so many of your games you can drive to. Yeah. Like literally, you you can drive to. But in Vancouver, there's no driving to any games. No. Everything is a flight. It's multiple hours, yeah. and that, that takes a toll on the players. Even early on, the Canucks have been seen as a goaltender's graveyard <laughs> with controversies and interteam rivalries between netminders. Yeah, you don't want to be a goaltender in Vancouver. No, I actually lived with a uh, Vancouver goaltender's family back in Nova Scotia when oh, he was wow. playing here, Troy Gamble. Holy shit, really? Yeah. I remember Troy Gamble. Yep. He was quite liked. Yeah, I was going to school and Troy was playing in the NHL. That's cool. So I never got to meet him, but yeah. I got to talk to him on the phone. That's super cool. Yeah, he was very liked. Yeah. One of the early team owners even made off with $3 million of the club's money. Oh, really? Yep. Over the years, the team began to improve. In the 1981-82 season, the Canucks made the Stanley Cup final for the very first time in franchise history with Richard Brodeur in goal. Yeah, one of the all-time loved goaltenders in Vancouver. I, yeah. King Richard, we call him. I love Richard Brodeur. The Canucks were swept in four games by the New York Islanders, led by scoring legends Mike Bossy and Brian Trottier. Yeah, and something about New York and Vancouver. Yeah, we're about to get into that. Mm. It wasn't until 1994 when the Canucks made the Stanley Cup final for the second time. That's when fans really lost their composure and wreaked havoc downtown. The Canucks were on a roll in 1994. Pavel Bure scored on Mike Vernon in the second OT period of Round 1's Game 7 against the Calgary Flames. Canucks and fans alike had hoped that this would be their year. The Canucks went on to beat the Dallas Stars four games to one to take the conference semifinals. In the conference finals, the Leafs could only manage one game against the Canucks too, taking them to the Stanley Cup Final for the second time in their history. 
NHL Original Six team, the New York Rangers, were to be the Canucks opponents for the league championship and the coveted Stanley Cup. (laughs) The Rangers hadn't won a cup since 1940. A lot was on the line for both star-studded teams. Canucks goalie Kirk McLean was putting on a goaltending clinic in nearly every game, as was Rangers goalie Mike Richter. The Russian rocket Pavel Bure was dazzling the competition with his speed and fast release. The Rangers' Brian Leach was also a scoring monster that year. (laughs) The two teams were pretty evenly matched going into the final. The Canucks took Game 1 away in Madison Square Garden after Martin Jelena scored the last-minute goal in the third period, taking the game to overtime. Kirk McLean made 52 saves that game. Jeez. After Ranger Brian Leach hit the post, the puck came to Canucks' Greg Adam, who scored on Mike Richter, winning Game 1 for Vancouver. Oh, I get chills. Seriously. Embarrassed by their Game 1 loss, the Rangers beat the Canucks soundly 3-1 in Game 2. The Rangers beat Vancouver at home in the next two games, 5-1 and 4-2. In Game 4, Mike Richter made a save on a Pavel Bure penalty shot, and Brian Leach got four points. Hmm. Down three games to one, the underdog Canucks came back during the next game in New York, running away with the game after Dave Babich scored the go-ahead goal midway through. The Canucks won that one 6-3. <sighs> back at home, the Canucks won again, 4-1, to one, tying the series at three games apiece, Forcing Game 7 back at Madison Square Gardens. Oh, man. There's a famous photo of Trevor Linden bleeding onto his shirt by way of a Messier hit late in the third of Game 6. His eyes are closed, a look of exhaustion on his face, as he places his hand on Kirk McLean's head after the game win. God. Oh, those Linden and McLean. My heart. Game 7 started rough for the Canucks. The Rangers were ahead. 2-0 after the first period. Canucks captain Mr. Clutch, Trevor Linden, scored shorthanded, giving the Canucks a bit of hope and shutting up Rangers fans just for a moment. (sighs) Mark Messier scored on the power play midway through the second, and even though Linden scored again early in the third, it wasn't meant to be for the Canucks. After a brilliant pass from Cortinal, Canucks rookie Nathan Lafayette Hit the post with 70 seconds left in Game 7. I'm glad you bring that up. A lot of people forget that Nathan Lafayette almost tied this game up. Yeah, but he didn't. No. And that was it. The New York Rangers had broken their 54-year drought, winning the Stanley Cup, and sending the Vancouver Canucks home empty-handed. Oh, yeah. So, quick few things. Um, That original... uh, round against the flames was insane that was so now people don't realize the canucks sucked that season if i remember correctly they only made it into the playoffs based off of the last game of the season it was Mm -hmm. one you win this year and you lose it year out so they weren't expected to do anything in the playoffs and they got the game seven yeah so that calgary series the momentum they gained from that because it was a lot of like uh, you know, triple OT games and stuff like that. And the save by Kurt McLean. If you want to see a great save, Google Kurt McLean, the save. Canucks fans who had been watching the game downtown at the Pacific Coliseum and in their homes were heartbroken. The disappointed crowd left the stadium. 
they'd been watching on screens inside. Most were peaceful, but some wanted to cause trouble. An old beater car decked out in Canucks colors was flipped over and set careening across the road near the Coliseum as the angry crowd cheered. Downtown it was worse. Mm -hmm. Between 50 and 70,000 fans, many who'd been drinking all day long, made their way downtown and gathered in a mass, stopping at Robson and Thurlow. Events played out live on all the TV channels here in BC. The whole mess was quickly out of control. The crowd was smashing store windows, there was looting, people climbed atop cars and up light standards ripping down street signs. A massive, musicless mosh pit was formed with people slamming into one another. Of course, many drunken fights broke out. Classic. Police began arresting people using pepper spray to take down the unwilling. Rioters, many not even hockey fans, began pelting police with rocks and bottles. Residents in Vancouver's typically quiet West End were terrified. Two men used the cross street trolley wires to do a high wire act. One made it across, the second didn't, and was critically injured when he lost his footing, plunging the near 20 feet to the pavement of Robson Street below. Yeah, not the smartest move. No. Here are some of the sounds from the melee as badly out... Uh, as badly outnumbered and frustrated police try to regain control, you can hear cops calling for assistance. In audio, we got from Daryl Vancouver's hour-long YouTube video credited to videopedia.ca, and that site appears to be a permanently dead link. That's craziness. So the, th the thing that stands out to me, they lost. Why so much cheering? It's like they're. I guess it's just they're excited for the riot. Could be, which is a sad commentary. It's a happy riot. Yeah, no. Once the SWAT team arrived, they began trying to move people back with shields only, but the crowd kept pushing. Eventually, the SWAT team decided it was time to use tear gas, and the crowd was dispersed that way. Here's some audio of the crowd control command and dispatch telling all units in the area to don their tactical gear. Hey, put on your gas mask, put on your mask. 
helmets. Masks and helmets for everybody. Gas mask on, everybody. You get a gas mask. You, you get, get a, a gas yeah, mask. Everybody gets a get gas it. mask. The looting and destruction went on as the crowd of rioters fled in different directions after multiple gas grenades were used. RCMP had to replenish VPD's tear gas as they'd run out. Damn. As gas is indiscriminate, many residents, bystanders, and media covering the events suffered from tear gas inhalation. Yeah. From Wikipedia, St. Paul's Hospital responded to the situation by placing guards at the emergency room entrance to prevent tear gas victims from entering, claiming there was nothing they could do for them. Eventually, as reported in the New York Times, bowls with water were placed outside by security guards for those suffering from tear gas. Uh, arrests and small pockets of damage continued into the night. The battle on Robson Street had gone on for around two and a half hours. At the end of it, 540 police, both VPD and RCMP, had been deployed to handle the situation. 200 people were injured and 150 were arrested. Many were charged. A plastic bullet fired by police struck rioter Ryan Burnt in the head. He was in a four-week coma and suffered permanent brain damage from the incident. Police called him an instigator in the riot, which he denied. A civil suit was later filed by Burnt against the police and the city of Vancouver for use of excessive force. The Supreme Court of British Columbia took the side of the cops and dismissed that case. The total cost of this riot was $1.1 million. The city of Vancouver had a big black eye as news organizations all over the world were covering the hooliganism in one of the prettiest cities in the world. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so this riot was mainly mainly took place on Robson Street, which Again, for those who don't know the area, that's kind of our... Rodeo Drive. I was, yeah, exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Like It's our fanciest street where people go to buy stuff. And so having a riot there is kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We were living in North Vancouver at the time, mm -hmm. and I remember watching the riot unfolding on TV, and I was just like, what the hell is going on? I was kind of glad I was, I was where I was. Yeah, yeah. My friend Nick, who lived uh, downtown... Uh, in the West End, yep. heard all the commotion and went out to see what was going on. And just as a gas grenade landed near him. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, so he had to run away. Oh, no. It was just like, I'm just going to see what's going on. And, yeah, yeah. And kablooey, <laughs> a gas grenade comes comes flying by. Yeah, that it, it was really like, I, I was working at, uh, I was delivering pizzas at the time for a company that sold pizzas and was in a building shaped like a hut. And, um, and, and so I, it was an interesting time to be delivering pizzas because I can write like for the whole, were you of, in Vancouver delivering pizza? No, New Westminster. Oh, okay. But it was interesting during that whole playoff run because during game time, it, it the lower mainland was literally a ghost town. Everybody was inside. Everybody. And I hated when I had to go to the customer's door because I, inside uh, the restaurant, the game's playing, in my car it's playing, but when I'm going from my car to their home, I, I there's no... And, and so, like, it, I can't tell you, there was a bunch of times where I'm like, like, you're hearing something exciting, you're like, shit, I gotta... And you run outside, and you're just trying to hurry up, and you would hear all of us, like, it's quiet ghost town, then you'd hear, ah, yeah, yeah, from every direction, where the cops yeah. would get a... It was such an interesting time, but the riot itself, yeah, I, I was working... And uh, I remember 
like just hearing it all. And I remember going home after work and watching CNN mm-hmm. and <laughs> covering our riot. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, kind of embarrassing. Yeah, it was. Investigators were hired to look into the 1994 riot by the police commission, and they made a number of recommendations to prevent a further mess like this one from ever taking place. Well done. Some of the recommendations were more extensive and detailed planning was required, including some better post-game control of crowd disbursement and limiting alcohol sales on game day. Mm. Better training and equipment were required, uh, particularly for non-crowd control unit officers. The cameras in the area operated by the media contributed to the problem, according to uh, this report. Oh, interesting. There were significant failures in communication in terms of the police's ability to address the crowd, communicate with each other, and with other agencies that were assisting. So, so there the, you go. The ca- they said the cameras operated by the media. Are they saying like people were trying to show off... Kind of, yeah. or, or make a scene yeah. for, yeah. Okay. Because these, all these media cameras yeah. were there. Yeah. As we have uh, yet another riot to talk about, a lot of these recommendations clearly fell on deaf ears. <laughs> Let's take a break before we tackle some dark moments on the ice for the Canucks and the 2011 riot. There have been some ugly on-ice incidents as well, both the most notable taking place between 94 and the 2011 riots. Yep, I remember this first one. League tough guy Marty McSorley was playing for the Bruins against the Canucks in a spirited game on February 21st, 2000, most likely caused by some residual animosity after a fight between the two earlier in the game with 4.6 seconds left. McSorley viciously slashed Canucks bruiser Donald Brashear in the temple with his stick. Yes. Yikes. Brashear came crashing down backwards, bouncing the back of his pumpkin off the hard ice. He was knocked unconscious and was later diagnosed with a grade 3 concussion. After being suspended for the rest of the season, 23 games, McSorley never played another game in the NHL. He was charged and found guilty of assault with a weapon the next fall and sentenced to 18 months probation. Yeah, so this one was uh, really, I I remember it quite well. I lived right next to VGH, Vancouver General Hospital, and was watching the game. So I remember when it happened, and it was brutal. Like, it wasn't like, uh, you know, you're playing hockey. It wasn't just like a tap. Yeah, and there, there, there's often, the st- you know, your stick, well, your skating will hit somebody unintentionally. So, yeah. no, this was a, a two-handed slash, like with a bat. To the head. To the head of Donald Brashear. Yeah. And he was out for a long time. Yeah. And so I, I, I remember uh, every ambulance that was coming by, I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's them bringing him to... Mm. VGH, so I'm sure one of them. Wow. I'm sure one of them was, but that was it was really brutal. Uh, I remember commentary during the game, and I think one of the commentators even slipped and called uh, McSorley a chicken shit. Probably so. You got to be pretty mad at a guy to to do that. Yeah, and it looked it or, really looked like Brashear might like. There was questions about like how serious this was going to be because he was like out cold, seizing. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was yep. brutal. One of the worst moments in Canucks on-ice history came at the hands of forward Todd Bertuzzi after a rout on the Canucks by the Colorado Avalanche. Yep. Three weeks prior, 
Colorado Avalanche forward Steve Moore collided with Canucks center Marcus Nasland. Nasland was reaching for the puck and Moore bashed into Nasland's head at full speed with his shoulder. Nasland was out for three games with a bone chip in his elbow and a concussion. There was no call on the play, which coach Mark Crawford was livid about calling out the refs and Colorado in the media. Mm -hmm. Canucks fans expected retribution, and sadly, it came. The next time the teams met in Vancouver, in the third period, after Moore had already fought scrappy Canucks forward Matt Cook in the first, Todd Bertuzzi, Marcus Naslin's buddy and line mate, was chasing Steve Moore around the ice, challenging him. Moore didn't want to fight. He'd already fought once, and Bertuzzi was twice his size, so he turned his back on the winger. Bertuzzi grabbed Moore's jersey, pulled him backward, and sucker-punched him in the back of the head. Moore fell unconscious face-first onto the ice, with Bertuzzi falling on top of him. Canucks and Avalanche teammates piled onto their backs in what later became a line brawl between the teams. Refs and coaching staff, alerted by the players, saw that something was seriously wrong with Steve Moore, who lay motionless on the ice for a full 10 minutes while being stabilized for travel to the hospital. According to Wikipedia, Moore was treated for three fractured vertebrae in his neck, a grade 3 concussion, vertebral ligament damage, stretching of the brachial plexus nerves, and facial lacerations. He was also suffering from amnesia. Yeah, it was a disgusting thing by Bertuzzi. Bertuzzi made a tearful apology the next day during a news conference and was ultimately suspended for 20 games. And yeah. it was kind of more than that because there was the lockout the next season. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that. Moore would never play in the league again. He sued Bertuzzi and the Canucks for $68 million. The case was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount 10 years later in the summer of 2014. What do you think of that one? Yeah, so uh, I had a lot of mixed feelings about it at the time because that hit on Nasland, who, oh, God, Nasland, I love that guy. That what, was also what, not good. What a player. Like, that was a blatant, blatant uh, cheap shot mm -hmm. on Nasland. And so you take out, like, our top player. Yes, as a hockey fan, you are sitting there going, like, yeah, he's got to pay. He, he's got to pay. Um, and so there was a part of me when you saw Bertuzzi going after him, that's like, yeah, make him pay. But then you see it a cheap shot, yeah. you know, a hit from behind and, and he collides yeah. down. It, w it was pretty disgusting. And uh, I can understand uh, Nasland and Bertuzzi were great friends. And so I, you can understand like the emotion he had, but my God, that was a cheap shot. Um, and so it was really disgusting and it left a real big stain uh, on Bertuzzi's career, understandably. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of the damage was more from the pileup afterwards where yeah. everybody is on top of him but nonetheless Bertuzzi that's Bertuzzi yeah. who put him in that position yeah. so accountability is on him yeah I, I I loved Bertuzzi yeah I thought that line was just so amazing and um so I was really like I lost a lot of respect for him after but mm. I still like I still was a fan of his I still am to this day but it just leaves an asterisk yeah. Uh, next to his name. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get on to the 2011 riot. Yeah. In 2011, the Canucks made the final round of the playoffs again. This time, they'd play against the Boston Bruins. Ooh. Yeah. 
Many were hoping that a third time would be a charm. I mean, this is their third time in the final. Maybe. 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 This had been the team's best season ever, points-wise. In fact, the Canucks won the President's Trophy for having the most points in the regular season with 117. So that's that's outstanding. It is outstanding. Henrik Sedin and his brother Daniel led the team in scoring, and team captain, star goaltender Roberto Luongo... (laughs) was nothing short of acrobatic between the pipes. Exactly. The team had slain the dragon known as the Chicago Blackhawks in round one in a game seven nail-biter with an unassisted goal by undrafted Alex Burrows. The Hawks had sent the Canucks golfing the previous two years, beating (laughs) them in round two of the playoffs both times. That was probably the most intense series of hockey that I'd watched to that point, other than the 94 series. Yeah, 94 always will hold the biggest spot in my heart. But this, uh, our our uh, battles with Chicago yeah. were pretty, pretty damn epic because, yeah, there was a pretty heated rivalry. Oh, for sure. There, we really, both teams did not like each they other. and so each other. Yeah, it was, it was a really, really intense series in, in 2011. Roberto them. Luongo used to make comments about the song Chelsea yeah, Dagger. Yeah. He says, yeah, I got to hear that seven times one night because that was their goal song. Yeah. That they yeah, every time the, the, yeah, the Blackhawks would get a goal, they would play that song. Oh, I hate it. To this day, I want to punch anything that's playing it. (laughs) Chelsea Dagger. The Canucks won the conference semifinals against the Nashville Predators by four games to two, and they got past the San Jose Sharks in the Western Conference Finals four games to one. And so what were you thinking about the Canucks' chances at that point in the playoffs? Uh, The best that they had ever had. Yeah. Because, again, not it wasn't like 94 where they shouldn't have been in the playoffs but made it to the playoffs. And they had this deserved outside. to be and there. This one, they deserved it. And so you see that consistency of a dominant season, and then you see a damn hard-fighting dominant team in the playoffs. I was like, oh, my God, this could be it. Yeah. Most of us were hopeful, but I think we forgot to take something into account. The Boston Bruins. Yeah, yeah we did. Yeah. The Bruins came to Vancouver to play, and play they did. Hard, and some would say dirty. Yeah, but I think dirty is a part of playoff hockey. Yep. Their strategy was to shut the Sedin line down, and it worked in game yeah. one. Yeah. The Canucks were clearly agitated by Boston's rough play. It appeared on video that Alex Burroughs had bit Patrice Bergeron's <laughs> finger through his glove during one heated interaction. I forgot about that. Yeah. There was no scoring at all until the last 19 seconds of Game 1 when Rafi Torres somehow got the puck past Bruins goalie Tim Thomas, winning the game for the Canucks. <sighs> the trouble, though, was already evident for anybody willing to see it. The Sedins had not shown up on the scorecard at all. Yeah, they really were shutting them down that game. Game two at Rogers Arena looked a bit better for the Canucks, but did require overtime. Alex Burroughs, accused bitey villain of game (laughs) one, scored just 11 seconds into the first overtime period, winning game two for the Canucks. And that was the second fastest end to an overtime period ever. Hmm. Yeah. Didn't know that. Now it was off to Boston for games three and four. So yeah, uh, four game series. Canucks have a two game, two game lead. Lead. You're really thinking like, looking good. It's oh my god, I'm going to see a Stanley Cup in Vancouver. Yeah. Where's the parade gonna go? Like All oh, that. It, it was almost in my mind a lock. At home, the Bruins though ruled the roost. 
They trounced the Canucks 8-1 to in Game 3. Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty bad game. <laughs> but lost Nathan Horton to a massive mid-ice check away from the puck by Canucks Aaron Rome. And Rome was ejected from the rest of the series. Yeah. In Game 4, the Canucks were shut out 4 to nothing, And it was the first shutout that had happened in the Stanley Cup Finals since 1978. Luongo got pulled in that game and was replaced by backup Corey Schneider. Luongo was later upset that Tim Thomas hadn't said anything nice about him in the media. And Tim Thomas was the goalie yep. for Boston. Yeah. And Luongo said, I've been pumping his tires ever since the series has started. And this whiny comment fueled more Vancouver hate by Bruins and their fans. Mm -hmm. Game 5 was another squeaker with only a single goal by Vancouver's Maxime Lapierre. That won the game for the Canucks and put them ahead three games to two. <sighs> so we can eliminate them the next game, Scott. Oh, yes, we can. We're let's going, do it, Mike. Let's, let's eliminate them. We're going back to Boston for game six. The Canucks road woes continued. Canucks, early in the game, Canucks speedster Mason Raymond was taken into the boards awkwardly 20 seconds into the game by Bruin Johnny Boychuk. Ooh. Raymond suffered a cracked vertebra and had to be taken to hospital. The Canucks managed only two goals to Boston's five in a game that saw some real animosity toward the end, with four game misconduct penalties being handed out, mm. two per side in the last two minutes, and Daniel Sedin was one of them. Which is, like, they're the nicest. Yeah. They don't fight. They are just, like, yeah, they're what you would think about Swedish players. Like, they're just the sweetest guys. Well, Boston was under their skin. A frustrated Luongo had to be replaced again by his backup, Corey yep. Schneider. Coming back to Vancouver, the series was tied three games to three, and Canucks fans would be subjected to a yet another Game 7. <sighs> Giant screens were set up in fan zones outside the CBC building and in other places for fans to watch the games both home and away. Yeah, The streets were packed every game, Carol and I went downtown and watched game four with my sister-in-law, Andrea, who was in town, mm -hmm. and we watched the Canucks lose four to nothing. There's nothing better than watching your team lose with thousands of other people. Yeah, I got some pictures of the disappointed crowd that I'll use for the cover art oh, cool. for this, this week's show. Uh, did you get to see a game that way down at the fan zone? Or? Well, so no, I was uh, working throughout the whole thing uh. and I worked nights. And so, but I, you know, and I won't hide the fact because, you know, everybody could like, I, let's say I wasn't really working. We were for a cable company. There's TVs yeah, everywhere. We were, and and we everybody was okay with me just sitting there watching and running around the building when we got a goal and stuff. So. <laughs> yeah. People came from all over the Lower Mainland to participate in the outdoor big screen viewing of the games. Game 7 had the largest crowds ever. Some estimates put the crowd that day at 100,000 people. I mean, I, I think that that's, that it's a, that's a great idea. Yeah. To get, like, you know, uh, the public to be able to congregate to watch their team. That's a great idea in theory. Carol and I made a decision to stay home and watch Game 7 from there. We were living in Burnaby at the time. Superb decision. Why? Because of the rumors all over the internet. Facebook, Twitter, and the hockey message boards were filled with people speculating that there would be a repeat of the 1994 riot. Win or lose, there was going to be trouble. It's, it doesn't take 
a lot of genius to figure out that alcohol, massive crowds, public space, something can erupt. Yep. Rumors swirled that there was unrest on the Canucks bench too. Some assumed that Corey Schneider, the backup goalie, would replace the team captain Luongo for the important seventh game. Remember that? I have a very, very interesting story about that, so I'll tell you after. No, finish. I'll let you finish this bit, and then I'll tell. Luongo did start, but it made no difference. With only 21 shots on Luongo, the Bruins scored three goals on the star netminder, and Tim Thomas, at the other end, stopped all 37 shots the Canucks could muster. Adding insult to injury... The Bruins' bad boy, Brad Marchand, scored his second goal of the game, an empty net goal with less than three minutes remaining. When it was over, 4 nothing for Bruins, the Canucks team and fans were forced to watch the Boston Bruins skating around our arena with the Stanley Cup over their heads. That whole Luongo starting. Yeah. Uh, everybody wanted Schneider to start because yeah. he was doing well, uh, but the decision was made to put Luongo in. And I can get I get it. Like if you're the coach, this is your star goalie. If you say I'm not letting you play in game seven of the Stanley Cup finals, you're essentially saying we don't give a shit about you. A joke would later be made on Boston.com's coverage of the route. Question What time is it in Vancouver? Answer It's twenty past Luongo. Oh jeez. Outside on the streets of Vancouver, trouble was already brewing. Even before the game had ended, police began the process of trying to contain small pockets of drunk and angry fans in the fan zones. So many people had crammed themselves into downtown Vancouver, the SkyTrain and transit buses were overloaded, and traffic was snarled everywhere. Even if you wanted to leave, it was almost impossible. Yep. SkyTrains were packed to capacity until 1 a.m. that night. All yeah. the way to Surrey. Yeah. Well, I was working. I needed to catch the train. Yeah. Yeah. After watching the Bruins being presented with the cup, we turned to the local TV coverage to watch what everyone, it seemed, but the police knew was coming. Yeah. Much of our coverage comes directly from the independent review of the 2011 Stanley Cups riot called The Night the City Became a Stadium, published on August 31st, 2011. Hmm. According to the report, the riot started this way. At 7.46 p.m., a Twitter user with the handle Marimo tweets, Get ready for a riot, Vancouver. Bottles fly toward the blank screen. A planned post-game segment is cancelled to encourage the crowd to leave. Media report that people are burning Bruins flags and jerseys shouting, Fuck Boston! And there are signs reading, Riot 2011. If you're bringing signs... Yeah. Yeah. It's premeditated. Exactly. People are throwing things at a flip vehicle, jumping on it, striking it with objects that have come to hand. More vehicles are turned over, garbage can fires are set, and fireworks are shot at the big screens. At 7.57, the flip vehicle at Canada Post is in flames. At 7.55, Silver Command authorizes officers to don tactical gear to deal with the group of rioters at Georgia and Richards. Tear gas is also approved. In the following minutes, all VPD public safety units are told to gear up. The PSUs, the friendly officers in baseball hats, change to their hard gear of helmet, gas mask, shield, long baton, and body armor. This takes about a half hour, and once dressed, the units will regroup. Initially, the plan is to disperse the crowd with a running line, and if that doesn't work, 
they can move to tear gas. Firefighters are dousing the burning vehicles, but it is dangerous work and they soon are mobbed. Wires are knocked down at Georgia and Homer. At 8.02, the VPD requests that Surrey RCMP and Delta Police send any officers they can spare. Canada Post remains the epicenter of the riot. Command decides the riot squad should try to move people away from a burning car using tear gas if they have to. Police officers, not in tactical gear, are at risk. A report comes at 8.05, an officer being injured by a thrown object. By 8.07, more windows are smashed at Budget, the BMO branch across Georgia, Black and Lee, Blends, Clover Salon, and Restaurante Dargino. An unconfirmed report says shots have been fired. A massive convergence of police resources in the city center is underway. Additional RCMP tactical troop members are sent en route from Surrey. VPD units are moving around within the downtown core as directed. The mounted unit is ordered to Beatty and Pender down the slope from the riot. Additional officers from West Vancouver, New Westminster and Abbotsford are heading toward Vancouver. The crowd has taken control in some places. Some people are putting scarves over their faces. Metal poles from destroyed fencing are brandished and windows of vacant buildings are smashed. The portable toilets at the center of the fan zone threaten to collapse under the weight of people who have climbed on top and soon they are all tipped over. What a shitty thing to happen. Ayo. Oh my God. What a mess. Yeah, man. Yeah. Here's Global Vancouver's Chris Galis reporting from In the Midst of the Melee. We just heard a big explosion uh, from the scene of where that burning car was right in front of the Canada Post building. I'm not going to show you that right now because we've got a van in the way, but there's a big fire going on down there right across the street here. They've broken out a significant number of the windows in the Bank of Montreal building. You can see uh, a bunch of people who are uh, watching and recording it on their on their phones. And it uh, it's really stunning that so many people are staying down here and if not actually throwing rocks and bottles at the windows participating by recording it and you have to wonder if that incites the people who are doing it to continue doing it i'm going to ask tony you can see the uh, police advancing up homer right now this is really uh, the first time we've seen them try to gain a foothold here at this intersection with thousands of people uh, still milling around, hundreds running uh, to get away from them. I haven't seen tear gas or anything like that yet. You still see a number of those police officers, although some are in riot gear. Many of them are not. And then uh, a big fire burning in front of Canada Post building again. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure we can get that shot, but it's all happening right around us right now, Jill. Whew. Yeah. At 8.26, a police negotiator using a long-range acoustical device, uh, LRAD, reads the riot act by playing a pre-recorded message loop informing citizens they are taking part in an unlawful assembly and have 10 minutes to leave the area. Uh, most of the crowd simply ignores the police pleas to disperse. Here's more coverage from Global's Chris Galis. We just had another line of police uh, show up right here at the corner of Georgia and Homer. They've established uh, and they've established a line, cleared out the intersection here, and they've brought out the big speaker that you referenced earlier, uh, encouraging the crowd to disperse 
over the loudspeaker. Tony, I think, has got a shot of the big fire that's been burning right down in front of the Canada Post building there. And we continually hear these big bangs or booms, and I don't know if those are flashbangs that the police are using to help disperse the crowd or whether those are whether those are fireworks and uh, it seems like uh, it, maybe it's a combination of both because we've seen uh, a lot of fireworks going off right from when the game started so other flashbangs down there i can see them now by the uh, by the fire and that is obviously part of the uh, vpd trying to get people encourage them to move along they do, Chris, by what we're seeing, have a, a large intersection cleared of the crowd, but at either end, still massive crowds standing there. I'm, I'm not quite understanding why these people are still hanging around. It's a mystery, Jill, and it, uh, I think it's a sad comment on, on how this kind of event becomes a magnet for people who want to record it on their personal devices and share it online because everybody you look around all of our video will show people with their smartphones in the air their iPhones their Blackberries whatever in the air over the crowd videotaping and recording what they're seeing and um, you know that seems to be what's drawing people it's obviously a very dramatic scene down here it's uh, it's very fluid and, and dynamic and everybody for some reason wants to record that as part of their own uh, experience and now we're seeing uh, looks like a canister that involves uh, uh, maybe tear gas but uh, but there are all plain close uh, not plain close but uh, cops down here who do not have their their gear on their breathing apparatus on so uh, we're not entirely sure what what's going on there, but well, the mounted patrol is here again, and they've cleared the they've cleared the uh, intersection, but they haven't really advanced any further than that. All right, thank you, Chris Galis, live in downtown Vancouver. That's it for us at this moment. We are continuing to watch the situation. Much more coming up. Stay with us. Whoa, yeah, that sounds like a riot. It's uh, yeah, they're having a riot there. Like that's that's it sounds intense. Cops were contending with a nasty crowd who'd gone beyond rocks and bottles, and now were throwing Molotov cocktails at them. Five VPD cars were written off. Three of those were burned. Although the police had control of the intersection at Georgia and Homer, the rioting now included looting and more destruction that was going on in all four directions away from their location. Yeah, it was growing. Concerned citizens got involved and were fighting with rioters, and many were injured. One was really badly injured yep. in front of the bay. I remember that one. One man fell off the viaduct and was terribly injured. The ambulance carrying him to VGH had to make its way through many rioters unwilling to move aside. Jeez. Many stores, including the Hudson's Bay Company, London Drugs, Sport Check, and Sears, were looted by morons over the next four hours while the transit system was trying to get as many people out of the downtown core as they could, and you were one of them. Yep, as were all of our employees at the time. Screens at the SkyTrain stations read, Due to the unstable situation in downtown Vancouver, we strongly advise customers not to travel downtown until further notice. That was a good warning. A man wearing a Boston Bruins jersey was beaten unconscious by rowdies. Jeez. And Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robinson spoke to the media during the fracas. Here's what he had to say. 
quack quack well uh, you know we uh, we are dealing with a small group of troublemakers it's uh, a bunch of angry young men who are fighting who are smashing things up lighting fires causing these problems uh, they will be held accountable and uh, there's a lot of photo photographic evidence we're asking people to keep whatever pictures they're taking on their phones because these people will be held accountable How for this small group Mm, I guess that's subjective. Yeah. To me, thousands is not small. No. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what constitutes a small group in his mind, but anyway. His appeal highlights again what many consider to be a major factor, and that's the people who were hanging around taking photos and video of the incident. They weren't leaving either. It was an unlawful assembly at that point, and everyone there, including the photographers, could have been charged. Yep. Many were claiming that the instigators of the riots were just shit disturbers, mostly from Surrey, who weren't real hockey fans at all. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. When the inevitable smoke and tear gas came out, many bystanders and rioters alike were gassed. During one encounter, a young woman was knocked over by police. In the aftermath, a photographer snapped the famous photo of she and her boyfriend, who was comforting her, engaged in a kiss as the two lay on the street amid the chaos. Yeah, it's a beautiful photograph. It made the rounds. It was a it was All over a viral. Yeah, it was yeah. a viral photo. It was a great photo. The melee went on for around four hours, and by midnight, it was beginning to wind down. The city was a mess. BC's Prosecution Service report on the 2011 Vancouver Stanley Cup riot prosecution section on the scope and impact of the riot reads this way. During the riot, there were 112 businesses damaged. 122 vehicles were damaged or destroyed. 52 assaults were reported against civilians, police, and emergency personnel. On the night of the riot, 1,035 emergency response personnel were deployed to the downtown core of Vancouver. 928 police officers, of which 606 were members of the Vancouver Police Department. The remainder were RCMP members of the Lower Mainland Municipal Police Departments, 63 members of the Vancouver and Fire Rescue Services, and 44 members of the British Columbia Ambulance Service. The public sought assistance of these first responders by calling 911 in historic proportion. For example, at one point during the riot, there were 92 calls to 911 for ambulance services placed on hold. Jeez. Half an hour after the riot started, ambulance services determined that the area was not safe and relocated all but six of their specially trained members to St. Paul's Hospital. Hmm. These six members were the only resource available to attend to the over 100 medical emergencies within the riot zone. Wow. Overnight, St. Paul's Hospital, located in the riot zone, dealt with 250 emergency room visits. In comparison, Vancouver General dealt with 15 emergency room visits during the same period. The total estimated monetary loss resulting from the riot was approximately $3.78 million. These approximate costs were attributed in the following way. $2.7 million to businesses, $540,000 to civilians, 525000 to the City of Vancouver, BC Ambulance Services, and St. Paul's Hospital. The psychology impact of the riot is difficult to quantify as personal experience varied greatly. Yep. Some people were terrified of losing their lives, having barricaded themselves inside businesses for safety, while others defended their property or other persons at risk to themselves. The riot stripped a sense of safety and security from many citizens. Yeah, it was really a sad, sad time. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there was something greatly different about the 2011 riots versus the uh, 1994 riots, yeah. in my opinion. Crews came out quickly with plywood to cover up the broken windows and, and burned out and trashed cars were towed off. The next morning saw many volunteers show up downtown to assist with the cleanup. Yeah, that which, was nice. Yeah. Officials had not learned from 1994, and the city paid for it in many ways. As well as poor planning on the part of the police, access to alcohol, social media, and people covering the event, media and citizens alike, were all pointed to as factors in exacerbating and prolonging the riot. Yeah, so the interesting thing, like, so every year we have, I think we still do, a big fireworks, a world fireworks celebration. Oh, yep. you, you ha- I have some facts about that. After the 2011 riots, yeah. they have been better managed and the crowd has been better behaved. Well, I I've rem- I remember ever since it's been around. Uh you like so, cuz it's it's you're looking at tens of thousands of people all all congregated yeah. in one area. They don't allow alcohol. No. I remember like you're checked as you're coming off it's the sky. And so we save for fireworks. Alcohol's not good with a large crowd, but we had said for like uh, an, a heated sports exchange, no, no, get pissed, it's all good. Yeah. Many people were arrested on the night of the riot, and many more later on after her social media campaign to identify the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. All told, police had a massive number of individual crimes to investigate. 297 riot-related events. Oh, wow. 26 arsons. 193 mischiefs damage to property, 23, 26 break-and-enters, and 52 assaults on civilians, police officers, and a firefighter. The tips poured in with people giving information about who they'd seen involved or heard talking later about involvement. Police received information through CCTV footage, social media posts, as well as shared photos and videos of the event. Yep. Between October... 31st, 2011, and July 24th, 2014, 912 charges were laid against 300 alleged rioters. In total, 246 adults and 54 youths were charged. I have a graph here that shows the number of accused uh, that were charged with various offenses, and some were charged with multiple offenses. So, taking part in a riot, 298 people. Which is a, seems like a low number considering. Yeah. Mischief, 161. Break and enter, 160. Masking, that's putting a mask on your face to do bad things, 52. Assault, 43. Arson, 18. Theft offenses, 13. Weapons offenses, 5. And obstruction of police, 1. Yeah, don't, all those numbers seem low to me, but... Mm. Maybe those are the ones that they could get convictions on or were most confident with? Yeah, yeah, most likely. In the end, 284 accused pled guilty, 10 chose to go to trial, and 9 were convicted, and the Crown entered a stay of proceedings, terminating the prosecution against 6 because the branch's charge assessment standard was no longer met. Over 500 days were required to complete the trials and sentencing hearings. That's expensive, too. Yeah, yeah. In 2015, Dave Jones, a security consultant for the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association, said... Quote, I think all the prosecutions were a wake-up call for people. It was the most recorded riot of all time. You can't go anywhere now without somebody recording you, and it just makes it a much higher risk to behave badly. 
Yeah. So that's something that really stood out for me with the riot. Like, I think that I can't say like globally, but I know at least locally, and I think it did have an impact globally, there was a change in people's behavior in public because up until then, like this is the first big riot that happened with such new technology, things like Facebook yeah. and phones on your camera. And it was recorded. There was so much footage of people doing stupid shit and got arrested because yeah. of the footage. And so before that, there was still people still considered social media and everything fairly uh, anonymous, even though your name's associated to it, but it's just this innocent nothing. But and then people start posting photos of hooligans or people making a post about, yeah, it was fun in the riot. I smashed stuff. You got arrested. So there was this big change in, oh shit, things aren't anonymous anymore. Yeah. They're, that an anonymity isn't there. Like if I do stupid things in public, there's a good chance I'm going to be outed. What was your commute home like that night? You know, I remember it being fairly anticlimactic. I was terrified though, because, um, and I had like a lot of our employees working in management. A lot of our employees were like, I need to get home. I'm afraid that the train's going to be shut down. I'm afraid I won't be able to, so on and so forth. So there was a lot of scrambling having to be like, okay, how do we get these people home? Like yeah. how, how do we, do we say like just everybody take off and just shut down the call center Yeah. or do we say, no, you got to stay. Because despite... you're, you're just adding to the number of people out on the streets. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. um, thankfully I wasn't like my shift was, it was done at like 1130. I remember, but I took off a bit early so I could make it home. I, but I think by the time I left, which was probably like 10 or 1030, um, things had died down a bit, but I didn't know mm. what I was going to be walking out into because the building was in downtown Vancouver off to the side, but yeah. it was in downtown Vancouver. But I remember being able to, uh, make it home in a relatively decent amount of time and stuff like that. So, because it was a, a late shift, but, uh, uh, yeah, leading up to like, you, we just kept hearing, I was all, had to be on top of the news. Cause again, I'm got to answer our employees questions about like, is it shut? That kind of, and it was, it was quite terrifying to be like, Oh my God. Like, is it, I'm thinking like, okay, well, some of these people live downtown. If I let them go, they're the that, what if something, what if they're walking home and get attacked in the riot and now I'm liable because I said, yeah, you can go like, it was, it was an interesting time. I remember specifically Carol and I hearing the RCMP racing down Hastings street. We were living on, uh, on mm. uh, just off Hastings street in Burnaby Yep. and police car after police car coming down the number seven, which turns into Hastings street. Yep. So that was the way they were coming in. And it was like. We 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 like yeah. one after the other. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, I think we we heard at least forty or fifty cop cars go by. Oh, oh I would imagine it was easily. Yeah. It was nuts. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, we just watched on TV and yeah. ate popcorn, and we're safe. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy, man. Uh, yeah. Like sitting watching a TV of all this chaos and seeing things burning and being smashed and fights. You're watching that on TV, and I'm like. Oh, that's like right outside the building. It was a weird sensation. Yeah. The Canucks only made the playoffs three times in the next eight seasons, going out in the first round in all three playoff bids. <sighs> Scott lost interest at that point. <laughs> well, there was something about that riot, that whole thing that made me just kind of soured me to, uh, uh, to yeah. hockey. Yeah. Uh, for the last four seasons, they haven't made the playoffs at all. Who knows when our real Canuck fans like ourselves, or, well, I guess me now, 
<laughs> will ever see the team hoist the cup. Hopefully, if they make it that far again, regardless of the outcome, people will be better behaved, and uh, you can count on the city being better prepared, that's for sure. I, I'm certainly still, I'm a lifelong Canucks fan. I yeah. always will be. I want nothing more than to see them with a the cup. But, like, like it's just my overall interest in hockey after that just dwindled. There hasn't been anything to excite me. Yeah. Um. It, it just, I really kind of felt let down by the city. Yeah. I really felt kind of let down by by the NHL and everything and so yeah, it just it it had a, it had an impact on how I view hockey. Yeah. And I think we're about to see Boston hoist the cup again. Let's yeah. sigh. Well, whatever. Bastards. Yeah. That's it for this week's case. Woo! Holy crap. Yeah, right? I think this is one of our longest shows. I think so. I think so. Well, we need two rides to cover. <laughs> Before we go, we want to give some shout-outs to our new patron patrons. This week's good eggs are Jenna Young from Nampa, Idaho. Oh, thanks, Jenna. Graham Lindsay from Ohatan, Alberta. Oh, never heard of that place. Thanks, Graham. Heather Cool from Vancouver, Washington. Ah, uh, the other Vancouver. Washington. Uh, thanks, Heather. Washington. Washington, yet with an R. Derek Vig, he's a new PM. What? From Grand Prairie, Alberta. Derek, that is so sweet of you. Cat Morris. Uh, we're not, we're, I, I remember Morris the cat? I, 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 I remember Morris time in the days. No, no, Morris, Morris the cat the was uh, the Meow Mix cat, I think. Really? And he was like, meow, 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 So meow, is meow, Cat meow. Morris meow, the, like. She's the voice. They used to say Morris the cat. No, Morris was very. Yeah, yeah, that she was the voice of the cat. A deep man's voice? Well, maybe. No, maybe the cat. cat. She was the meow, 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 meow. Oh, so that, that was that was her. Meow, meow, meow. So meow, where's she meow, from meow, then? Catsville. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, Catsville, uh, Kentucky. <laughs> Heather Cadieu. I don't know where Heather is from, but it made me. Th her last name made me think of cake, which oh. is a cadeau. Oh, now I'd really like some I, cake. I would like so some where cake. would you think Heather's from? With a name like Heather Cadieu. 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 Uh, Where do you think she's from? She is from the one of those places in Quebec, eh? You think so? But no. What? Okay. New Delhi. New Delhi. Yeah. And she drives a taxi in New Delhi. Born and raised, New Delhi. I know it's just it's bizarre, but that's where she's from. Wow. Yeah, that's where she's from. It, but the taxi is pulled by elephants. It is. Yeah. It is, but it's very happy and efficient elephants. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So her her family, she is of Indian descent. Her family just they're they're enamored. They like, they like French. Yes, they're they're enamored with uh, Montreal specifically, and so they went with uh, an authentic uh, Quebecois name. So yeah, interesting stuff. But it's true. Chris Freeman, probably Morgan Freeman's son. Uh no, his daughter. It's Christine. Oh, it's his. Oh, yeah, his daughter Christine. Freeman, don't don't get it mixed up, Mike. Just because it says Chris doesn't mean it's a dude. yeah. I, I'm sorry, I assume somebody's gender. Yeah, you did. So no, Chris Freeman is Morgan Freeman's uh, daughter. Morgan Freeman's okay, but here's the thing: he doesn't know. Wow. So this is this is going to be quite the so revelation. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. I'm sure he's listening. I'm sure Morgan Freeman's oh. big into Canadian true crime. Andy Dufresne died <laughs> on a Tuesday. <laughs> Yeah, no, so, yeah, and, and you see, she's a, a wonderful person. I've met her. Mm. Yep, wonderful person, because I meet all the Freemans. Sammy Dixon? Yep. yep. Where's Sammy from? Sammy is, is from Kenny Bunkport. That's in Maine. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. I love Maine. Yeah, so does Sammy Dixon. 
Does she know uh, George Bush and his family? Because they have a home there. That's the thing. She doesn't. Oh. But they're neighbors. Well, what does Sammy do in Kennebunkport? Is she a lobster fisherman? No, you you would think so, because that's quite the trade in, mm. in Kennebunkport. Uh, no, no, she's a limo driver. No. Yeah. And she's never met the Bushes. No, you and, and is their neighbor, so you would think at some point hmm. that would have would have happened, but no, no. Uh, but uh, limo driving is just what she does for employment. It's not her passion. What's her passion? Lobster fishing. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Rachel Clark from Victoria, B.C. Thank you, Rachel. Hey, Rachel, thank you. Alicia Cardoza from Ventura, California. Oh, cool. Hey, thanks, Alicia. Aaron Kropf, he was already uh, a patron. Okay. And sent me an email, said, after listening to you guys, I got to up my pledge to PM wow. level. Jeez, Aaron, so, thank you. Thanks, Aaron. That's wow. awesome. Yeah. Jennifer Mason from Montreal, Quebec. Quebecois. Thank you, Jennifer. Shauna Elliott from Colborne, Ontario. Cool. Thanks, Sean. We're getting a lot of Canadian yeah. uh, representation this week. Brandy George from Spruce Grove, Alberta. Oh, sweet. Thanks, Brandy. Matilda and her soon-to-be husband, Francis, sent an infusion uh, from donut for our donut money, saying, enjoy a donut. Thank you for the podcast from Bath, United <laughs> Kingdom. That is so cool. It's crazy. I still get a kick out of hearing like people from other parts of the globe listening to us. Yeah. It's so cool. And along with Jess Stetson's donation uh, of donut money, she wrote, from your neighbor in Maine, eat a donut for me or three. Seriously, I'm on a low-carb diet and it sucks. <laughs> okay. Winky face. I'll even, I'll get four. <laughs> Thank you so much to our patrons past and present for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. And if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or one-time support donut money can be sent to us via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast.gmail.com. And if you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is an important in a, is a powerful thing. Very. Uh, see, a, a search for the Yumber Yard, the Barnyard, and the Craft Barn. Our closed Facebook groups. If you want to join us, and uh, we did get a voicemail. Oh yes, uh, a yes. voicemail message from a listener. Yes, that I saved for this particular episode. So uh, I. I kind of want to hear that. So let's let's have a listen to yeah. Clark White. Hi there. I know I'm a little late to the bandwagon. It's Clark from Ontario. You guys are awesome. Vancouver Canucks suck. And you guys can shit in the hat. So there you go. I thought... <laughs> how, how, how great timing. I thought that was rather appropriate yes. for this, this show. <laughs> uh, yeah. The Canucks have sucked for a while. Yeah. They're, they're trying. There's some great new... You know, up and coming players there, but uh, but yeah, let's not let's not have another riot, please. Oh, please, no. If you want to leave us a voicemail yourself, feel free. The phone number uh, for the show can be found on darkpoutine.com's contact page, and you might just hear yourself on a future show. It's fun. Do it. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye bye, everybody. Chowder <laughs> from Maine. Chowder. <laughs>